Welcome to Elevate Louisiana's Engage Videocast. Elevate Louisiana was founded in 2020 to empower women leaders throughout Louisiana by connecting and educating them on the challenges impacting our state with data-driven nonpartisan solutions to make a better future for Louisiana. Welcome to the Engage video and podcast. I'm your host, Julie Stokes. Elevate Louisiana, in conjunction with the National Council of Jewish Women, conducted the following panel discussion on how women's career paths have been impacted and how COVID might still have an effect on women in the workplace several years down the road. I served as the moderator with panelist Libby Sonier, the Executive Director of Louisiana Policy Institute for Children, Ava Desjois-Cates, the Secretary of Louisiana Workforce Commission, and Missy Sparks, the Vice President of Talent Management at Ochsner Health System. A special thank you also to the National Council of Jewish Women, Hadassah, and the Jewish Endowment of Louisiana for putting on this presentation. I hope you enjoy. So our first speaker is Secretary Ava Desjois-Cates, who will give us her insights on the state of women in the workforce as we turn the corner out of COVID. And the secretary is sporting a new last name as she was recently married. Congratulations, secretary. Thanks. Ava is the secretary of the Louisiana Workforce Commission. She was appointed by Governor John Bell Edwards in January of 2016. As secretary, Cates is responsible for providing the strategic vision to enhance the growth of Louisiana's economy and its workforce by putting people to work the commission monitors employment, administers unemployment compensation and the related tax funds, provides training resources for employers and job seekers, and oversees worker compensation benefits. Cates has more than 15 years of leadership experience in public administration and is passionate about finding solutions that make Louisiana an outstanding place in which to live, work, and grow a business. She's been spotlighted for her workforce leadership during the COVID-19 pandemic, pushing Louisiana to be one of the first states to provide unemployment relief benefits to the self-employed and gig workers, which we have a lot of in our state, especially down here uh, in the New Orleans area. Um, we really appreciate you being able to make it and look forward to hearing from you. So uh, thank you, Secretary Cates. So I'm just so excited to join you all and thanks for the opportunity. I think the discussion about the labor force participation rate was long overdue uh, before even COVID and the fact that our labor force participation rate in this country has been declining for some 40 years and it is lower in Louisiana than it is in the rest of the nation. And that has been exacerbated by COVID and it's particularly disproportionate for women of color. So I think this is a timely conversation and I'm excited to be a part of tonight's agenda. Thank you. Well, could you tell us a little bit about um, the, the statistics on women in the workforce in Louisiana? Uh, you know, I, I saw a, a job um, report last week that seemed to indicate that um, women had lost, men might've gained jobs in April, but they were all men and there were no job growths among women. Was that trend true in Louisiana as well as nationally? Absolutely. And the Louisiana numbers are still coming in, but we do have 
um, national numbers. So overall, women have lost nearly 5.4 million jobs during the pandemic. Um, the number of women that have left the labor force since February 2020 is more than 2.3 million. Uh, research suggests that more women will have lost their jobs because of the industries that women traditionally work in. Uh, that's, of course, hospitality, healthcare, and like those caregiver um, roles, especially. And also, nationally, we know that one of the things that uh, impacts the labor force the most with women not being in the labor force is the fact that there are they are caregivers because it is one of the key reasons why individuals, both men and women, leave the labor force is to provide care to children, loved ones, aging parents, and the like. So not only are they, they all, first of all, you've got the problem that they're having to be home with their children because their children aren't in school, so they're being caregivers, but that a lot of times their professions were caregivers that weren't able to work for a while as well, right? Absolutely, and COVID, of course, also added to that in that we had uh, little ones, children that weren't in school, and um, that was, of course, one of the reasons that you could be on a PUA, a pandemic unemployment assistance claim, which is for those individuals that uh, actually could go back to work, but because the job was there, but they uh, couldn't go back to work because they were taking care of a child or a parent or the like. So it is just one of the things that has been exacerbated throughout the pandemic. And um, also the fact that childcare was also limited and continues to be limited and the cost of childcare we know makes it very difficult for those women, for everyone. We know how expensive childcare is and oftentimes people have to make the decision that they can't afford childcare so they can't work. Yeah. So um, were the problems concerning women in the workforce any worse in, in certain areas of the state or was it pretty much statewide? It's pretty much statewide. We know that particularly, um, again, women uh, and, and women in Louisiana, of course, make less than their male counterparts. We unfortunately have uh, one of the largest gender gap, gender wage gaps in the nation. We've gone from last to third to last, but that's hardly anything to brag about. So the mere fact that women in Louisiana are paid less than their male counterparts also impacts their labor force participation rate because simply put, it's a, it's a matter of economics. If I'm going to make less, but I have the same qualifications as my male counterpart or my significant other, well, then if we have to make a choice about who's going to be at home, well, then it makes sense for the one of us that is going to earn more simply by virtue of being of a di different gender to go to work. So it impacts women across all. Um, and I think this is a very important uh, thing to mention, it, it, it impacts women regardless of education. So even whether it's a terminal degree, a PhD, a law degree, or a high school diploma, women are disproportionately uh, paid less than their male counterpart, counterparts. Yeah, well, and, you know, I mean, like what, what you said, and I mean, it makes perfect sense. If you're, in a, if you're a married couple and the woman is gonna be making so much less, it makes sense that when COVID happens, She's the one that stays home to watch the kids because the kids are home from school. But that doesn't really work for stay at home, or I'm sorry, for single moms. Like 
what did single moms do in response to this nightmare that was COVID and your kids coming home, you know, to, to be home 24 hours a day? So that was certainly during the height of COVID, one of the things why the $600 plus up from the federal government that would then went to uh, now what it currently is, is $300 was so important because um, it was that parents and oftentimes single parents had to be at home with their children. Um, we know because of the occupations that women primarily um, are, are their disproportionate share of those lower wage occupations. And so therefore they were unable to really find any suitable childcare because childcare that was open during the pandemic was very expensive childcare and perhaps limited to those in certain professions such as healthcare and the like. So, but it's important to note that like 87% of registered nurses are women, but male nurses had a higher median, medium earning than the female nurses. So in 2019, the median earning of male nurses was 73,000, but the median earning of female nurses was 68,000. So even in those skilled, very um, healthcare occupations, I should say, uh, there is a disproportionate uh, advantage to men and that impacted everyone. Um, so while we needed more nurses, we had female nurses that really could not afford to go to work because they were taking care of their children. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things that we talk about with that wage disparity, um, I know that the legislature is currently in session, and I think it's important that we kind of talk about there's a bill uh, that has become the champion of equal pay. And generally it's just called pay transparency so that employees can't be restricted from talking about their salaries so that women can know if they are making less than their male counterparts. And I heard that a bill got out of committee. Well, um, we, we're, we're hopeful um, that the bill that you're referencing did make it out of the labor committee, but there's work in another committee. As you know, the labor committee is a tough place but yeah. we'll hopefully see what happens with the Payroll Secrecy Act and anything that adds transparency and adds light to it. And I think the biggest uh, evidence of that is with state civil service. So uh, there is pay transparency for state employees. And you see, since that has been enacted, of course, that occurred when you were a legislator, uh, that the pay disparity between female state employees and male state employees is virtually nil and next to none now. So it does make a difference because oftentimes it is just perhaps um, it, there is not ill intent there all the time, but when you begin to say, let's look at this or that people can see it, we then take a second look. It's just part of human nature. So hopefully the move, uh, it's something that we take on every year. We'll see how far it gets, um, but I think that having um, those interested parties from around the state really pay attention and voice their opinions to their elected officials will help to one day get it through the, the complete process. All right, so right now we'll go ahead and talk for a moment um, to Dr. Libby Sonier, who will give us her insights on what this COVID epidemic has meant for women and families. She serves as the executive director of the Louisiana Policy Institute for Children, where she leverages her nearly 20 year career 
supporting young children and their families. Recognized for her tenacity and her deep commitment to children, Libby has led teams of individuals in system-wide initiatives for the betterment of children, families, caregivers, and practitioners. She's also served as a state director of two federal programs managing multi-million dollar budgets, as well as developing, developing and implementing pilot programs for children birth age five to four in states across multiple agencies and community partners to improve the efficiency and efficacy of direct services for children and their families. Libby's experiences conducting longitudinal and experimental research allow her to translate scientific findings in a meaningful and practical policy implications that support better life outcomes for children. We're so happy to have you here with us today. Thank you, Libby. Thanks so much, Julie, and thank you all for having me. Um, the childcare sector really has been under immense stress throughout the pandemic um, for the entire country. But if we think about it in Louisiana, childcare was never mandated to close in our state. At the height of the pandemic, over 70% of our childcare centers shut their doors, worried that they would not be able to reopen after a prolonged closure. For the childcare centers who remained open, as was mentioned earlier, they remained open for frontline workers like nurses and others um, with reduced ratios and not really able to, to recover the cost of remaining open during that time. Collectively, the data that we've collected at the Louisiana Policy Institute for Children, um, we know that child, the childcare sector in Louisiana between March of 2020 and January of 2021 lost a collective $245 million just in our state. And yes, we've had uh, an influx of federal dollars. However, childcare has operated on thin margins before with no room for error. And so the first flux of the federal dollars that came into our state came into our state um, to really to help these small businesses of childcare, um, predominantly run by women and women of color, pay for necessities like rent and utilities. The childcare is funded through tuition. And so it's not like schools. You don't just get money because, you, you're, because you're a school. With the childcare center, you, you collect tuition to be able to cover your cost. Um, and so between childcare centers not having children in their, child, in their centers or the reduced ratios due to guidelines, um, the childcare centers were actually just bleeding money. Uh, the federal dollars really helped slow the bleeding um, that child care centers were um, facing. Um, and now the current influx of money coming into the state through the ARPA funds um, are, are really helping us to rethink and rebuild a system of child care that desperately needed it. The federal dollars will not fund a full system, however. They are one-time money. And that, that is why our organization um, and, and Elevate Louisiana and many other people are working in coalition together to work with policymakers to increase state investment in early care and education. We can't have a, a fully robust system meeting the needs of children and families without state investment. This legislative season, um, we are working to secure new revenue for early care and education through potential revenues of sports betting, a medical marijuana or whatever other source we can find. And when I started my career 20 years ago, never did I think I would be um, really advocating for sports betting revenue or medical marijuana uh, revenue. But at the end of the day, we wanna make sure that children and families have access to high quality early care and education. As I mentioned earlier, the dynamics of the industry of uh, running early care and education um, 
are very thin margins. And we have teachers that are making an average a little bit over $9 an hour. So what that tells me is that we have our most vulnerable population caring for our most vulnerable population, many of whom have meaningful credentials to work with young children, but can't even afford the basic necessities that they need themselves. Longitudinal research allows us to see what happens to children's development in times of economic unrest, like we've had with COVID-19. If we think about the Great Depression, the Great Recession of 08, we also think about Hurricane Katrina or the floods in 2016, we know that when we see an economic downturn, uh, children tend, their development tends to suffer. At the same time, we know that the need for childcare um, is great. We at the Louisiana Policy Institute for Children did a parent poll uh, in, the, in the fall of 2020. And what we found out is that even um, in an economy affected by COVID-19, families with young children continue to need childcare to support their employment, education, and actually they just need it to meet their schedules day in and day out. What, we're, what we heard through the parent poll is that parents were really struggling. Moms in particular, as we talked about earlier, women tend to face um, really weigh the, feel the weight of the caregiving situations. And so what's happened is that our, many of these caregivers that are mothers or female are feeling that they're having to work full time, educate full time, parent full time, and do everything all at one time, full time. And so it's really been a struggle that we've been able to see through our, our own collection of data. What we've also seen, and this was prior to COVID, is that families are still struggling to afford childcare and basic necessities. We know that childcare is one of the single greatest expenses for families, oftentimes even more than keeping a roof over your head. And this isn't just about families that are economically advantaged. These are middle income families as well that are really struggling. And we know that working families continue to rely on childcare even in the face of reduced income, increased stress, and concerns about the spread of COVID-19, and that economic challenges resulting from COVID-19 um, hit families of color and lower income families especially hard. And that's why we at the Louisiana Policy Institute for Children continue to try to uncover the data to understand what, not just what's happened within the early care and education sector, but what's really happened to families and to get the voice of families and what their needs are so that they can help their children thrive. We don't want families to just survive. We really do want them to thrive, but we have to do increased investment. We have to have it as a state. Obviously we're getting it at the national level, but if we don't sustain it through state efforts, it's not meaningful. And at the end of the day, we want meaningful growth and we want families to thrive and we want children to be successful, not only in school, but in life. Because we know during those first four years of life, 90% of the brain develops. And so this is a critical time period. And so what we know for Louisiana children is the majority of them don't enter, enter into kindergarten ready to learn. And so when you have access to high quality early care and education, it puts you on a trajectory to keep on going. And we wanna make sure that children have access to that. Well, that was um, very helpful information and just so important for people to understand that early childhood education is so important, not only for the children, but also for working parents and to keep women engaged in our workforce. We really appreciate you, um, Libby, and we'll return to, to our, you know, to you and everybody else for Q&A briefly. So finally, we have Missy Sparks. 
who will speak to us on the ways that we can accomplish working together with a departure from the usual office settings at times and give us a little glimpse into the long-term issues that women are facing in a post-COVID area. Vice President of Talent Management at Oshner Health and Human Resources, currently employing more than 32,000 staff across Louisiana and Mississippi, Oshner is Louisiana's largest private, not-for-profit employer, healthcare provider, educator of healthcare professionals. Missy leads her team in developing a diverse pipeline to support top quality patient care. She has established an effective workforce development platform to grow that pipeline of healthcare professionals through Oshner sponsored training programs for internal and external candidates with a focus on opening career pathways for the unemployed or underemployed. She also leads college and postgraduate internship fellowships, orientation onboarding, performance management, and employee engagement. She serves on the Workforce Development Boards of Orleans and Jefferson Parishes, Youth Force NOLA, Morris Jeff Community School, and Gulf South Communities in Schools. Additionally, she volunteers regularly in meal ministries for the hungry and unhoused in the French Quarter, and also is a member of Elevate Louisiana. And I don't know how she can keep up with herself. We are now, so we are now going to welcome Missy Sparks. Thank you so much, Julie, and thank you to the National Council of Jewish Women for raising this important conversation. Secretary Kate said it well, the pandemic was a massive disruptor for women, and it ratcheted up existing tensions that women face in the workforce. Traditionally, our, our businesses have failed to meet the needs of the working family, and women bear the brunt of balancing work and family responsibilities. And we saw this at the height of the pandemic with 95% of the country under stay-at-home orders and our essential workers in healthcare, we as a healthcare system, 80% female. So many of our working moms struggling with, how do I continue to earn an income to support my family, pay my mortgage, make sure that food is on the table, bring home a meal and provide care to patients in a time of great uncertainty. So certainly the challenges are real for women. When we received our first COVID patient, probably around March 9th of 2020, and the stay at home order came from our governor shortly thereafter, probably on May 12th and schools closed. We got that announcement on a Friday. So you can imagine if you are an RN, if you are a physician, if you are a certified nursing assistant, a medical assistant, and you're told on a Friday that your kids are gonna be out of school, but you need to be at work on Monday. What do you do? And many of our health care workers are single head of household females. It's a juggle, it's a, it's a challenge, it's a juggling act. You're trying to figure out how to do it all. We were fortunate that we were able to secure with Kid Cam Camp and open up daycare for all of our team members who needed it on that Monday, May 12th. So we didn't skip a beat. We had a place for people to go, but not all employers were able to do that. Again, women were disproportionately affected. And not only that, our essential care workers still had to figure out how to bring home meals to feed their families after spending a 12-hour shift tending to patients 
with tremendous fear and uncertainty of what risk they were putting themselves at. So we were able to provide meals to them to take home for themselves, for their families, and that was very important. But the pandemic taught us much, much about what we previously knew is that women had this extra burden placed upon them and the challenges and the struggles that we look at for women during that time, but not just then as we look forward. And the um, interesting thing about the pandemic, it is also a great opener up of new ways of thinking of opportunity. So one of the things that we have come to see from an employer perspective is one, all employers need to validate the strain put upon women as primary caregivers, coupled with their work obligations, possibly elder care in addition to childcare, and they're oftentimes CEO of their household. We gotta validate that strain because that calls us to create a different value proposition for our employees. How do we, one, encourage legislation to, to make sure that we have more investment in local high quality childcare? Dr. Sonia is right. Without that, a lot of our frontline patient facing women caregivers are at a disadvantage and they should not be. Their children deserve every opportunity to be ready for first grade just as much as any other's child does. So we do need to double down on high quality child care. We also need to find a way of offering more work-life balance for employees. We have had to think differently during the pandemic. While a lot of our front-facing, patient-facing areas continue to work in the hospital setting, our clinic staff, we yeah, we're able to do different ways of working as much of our clinic appointments pivoted to telehealth online we were able to help and create new flexible working options bringing individuals who once worked in a clinic setting to be able to work from their home by laptop and by iphone and ipad so that we could do something different we found a way of doing flex scheduling and maybe even having people have non-conventional hours. So at hours while kids were in school online at home, they could work in advance of their kids starting school or they could work at the end of the day. And that type of thinking has to remain with us post pandemic. It is a way that we can help to balance some of those stressors that have been placed upon the working family with kids and make it a more human approach make it a more um, beneficial way to be able to live a meaningful work life while still being able to care for our families at home and not have to feel so pulled. As a working mom, I know I feel that way as well. The other thing that the pandemic taught us is we got to destigmatize mental health. It's, a, it's an illness just as any other health illness. And one of the things we saw at the height of that pandemic, our frontline workers were carrying a lot of stress. We had to open up dialogue. We had to round and have conversation and say, it is okay. It is okay to be stressed. It is okay to talk about stressors and to offer resources from everything from social workers, therapists to mindfulness moments, to teaching people how to meditate, to giving permission 
to take 15 minutes, turn off the Zoom meeting, step out of the hospital room and decompress. And that that is, that's normal and it's good and it's healthy. And we gotta find a way for employers to be employers of the whole person and not just somebody who helps to move your business proposition forward. And then post-pandemic, we've got to continue to find ways to bring women back in. One of the statistics I read related to what Secretary Kate shared is that women by 2024 will finally get back to the ground that they've lost. We'll catch back up to men and be where we would have been if there were no pandemic. That's, that's two years away. It's too much. We need some returnship programs built by our employers, supportive pathways back into the workforce for women who might have downshifted their careers in order to care for their kids, to help to make sure that their home life is normal during the pandemic. How do we bring them back in without penalizing them? So this is definitely an opportunity for employers to think differently. We need our women back in the workforce, and we certainly want to make sure that we take the opportunity to learn from the pandemic and not just to be uh, mindful of what, what are those pain points in our society, but let's do something positive with those lessons and create a better work environment for all. Well, really, really good stuff. Um, we really appreciate you, Missy. Um, you know, along those same lines, you know, when we talk about that it'll take women until 2024, to get back where we were. One of the first things I think about, and, and this will be a little bit missy and a little bit uh, Secretary Gates, but if women were already at a salary disadvantage to men, what does this say for where we're gonna stand, you know, when you look at the numbers in a year? Do you see it being worse? It sounds like salaries might be affected long-term. Well, um... Unfortunately, that is a fear. I think the latest job numbers that came out are evidence that there is a, a shift in our culture with what is that balance and how do we cope with that. Um, the Organization for Economic Cooperation, which rates 38 countries, uh, US workers are ranked 10th highest in wages, but we're last in paid time off. How do we begin to rethink the world of work that we know in America. It's been such a long time since we've talked about things like workers' comp and um, unemployment. And you know this, that unemployment benefits started as the result of the Great Depression. So is this a wake-up call for our country to say, we have to value our workers, our citizens different, and we have to do better by our American families because when we don't do well by our workers, we don't do well by our families and we don't do well by our children. And I believe that some of the hesitancy with um, maybe the job or, or some of the job numbers are, are really reflecting that people are saying, um, maybe after spending time with my children, with my family, that I have to reevaluate what work looks like for me. Yet we have companies that, that need em employees. We, we have businesses that want to reopen. So um, I think we have to ponder who do we wanna be as a nation 
and how do we take this seminal moment in history to, to be better and do better? I think we've done that throughout the course of history, but how are we gonna do this now after the pandemic? Well, you know, one of the points that you bring up is that, you know, in, in this country, we have one of the lowest amounts of paid time off. And I, I can't think about that without thinking about how this COVID-19 epidemic in the long run, um, if we let it change the way we work, and the way we go to doctors to some extent, the combination of telehealth and being able to work remotely might help a lot. You know, there's a lot of times when maybe your child's home sick, but not that bad. You need to go to the doctor, maybe, you know, even telehealth, sometimes that won't work. But if you can work from home while they're laying on the sofa, um, cause that's how it works half the time, you know, then that might give people a lot more chance to get their work done. Um, you know, when they're still taking care of their, their families. That's an interesting point. I, I know today uh, I did something that after it happened, I, I kind of thought, well, this is a new way of thinking. Someone was in the office and they were not feeling well. We've all been vaccinated, but it was sort of, you need to go home, go home now. You should not be here. And we've all been vaccinated and perhaps we've all come to work when we weren't feeling well before because we just thought that's what we needed to do. But there was a general consensus, oh, no, you need to go home because we don't want to get sick. We've all been vaccinated, but hey, you need to go home. Uh, and, and that's a good thing that happened. It really is. I mean, and, and Missy, you know, I'd like to get your take on that. But to me, I mean, I think it's kind of crazy. But honestly, when you think about it, I don't know about most of you guys that are listening, but I know I haven't even caught a cold in a year. I'm going to knock on wood right now. <laughs> but with the masks and social distancing, Missy, what do you see? Do you, do you see this as an opportunity for people to work from home more often? Absolutely. In fact, one of the things that I find amazing is as healthcare, we often lag other organizations, other types of industries and in being able to move to some different ways of work. And the pandemic enabled us to move there quickly overnight. So even as we come back in a year later, we still have the majority of our corporate support areas. That's close to half of our workforce base working remote. So they are working in remote settings. We still have the ability to telehealth, which has just rocketed up in use. That is also another area where we have clinical workers working remote. So we see digital as a way of the future. We would love to see more broadband brought across Louisiana. So that one of the things that you get for workers who are working remote right now, if you're solely relying on your Wi-Fi and maybe you don't have a great plug-in at home, it can be spotty at time. How well can I stay connected? So can we get to a place where we equalize that so that everyone has that opportunity to work remote? So yeah. more flexibility coming into the workplace. So, you know, I'd like to mention and also as a statement and a question, but you know, one of the things before COVID happened, um, a place that I worked, Ernst & Young, happened to have an open house of this beautiful new office that they built in One Shell Square. And when you went there, you couldn't help but notice that they had all of these co-working spaces. So there were offices around the peri periphery for the high ranking, you know, people that got the C-suites and this and that. 
but I mean, there were all these cool spaces where you could sit in a window chair, you know, with a pillow and, you know, or you could rent, like it was like hoteling or whatever that new, you know, you could um, put your name in to share a workspace for two that had a screen on the wall where you could share your ideas together. They had workspaces for eight. I mean, just, it was crazy cool. And I can't help but think that things like that in tandem with working from home could really be the wave of the future. And Julie, to that point, that's where we are headed. So we are redesigning the floor that I've had is largely cubicles on the top and office space. We're redesigning the center of that floor. We'll keep some of the offices, but we're making it flex spacing. So there is that opportunity to hotel. I can drop in when I wanna come in and work with the team collaboratively, but I also then a couple of days a week can be working offsite, working in a different way that works for me and my family. I know, um, I've been talking to my husband actually about let's go look at some space like that people have designed for this because we employ a lot of women, <laughs> um, you know. I'd like to say too, like, yeah. like the other piece of this too is even though people's working spaces are changing, there's still a need for childcare because mamas can't do all the things all the time. Um, and so what we found in the pandemic and, and through listening and data is that even if you're working from home, you still need to find have access to quality early care and education. I mean, Missy brought that up earlier. Secretary brought it up too. Like, families can't do all the things all the time, and so it's really important to think about how we make sure families have access, possibly in different ways than they've had it before as well. Well, one of the things that that you've told me before, Libby, was that oftentimes college that that early childhood care cost more than college. It does. The true cost of care, what we know prior to the pandemic um, in our state is the true cost of care is about $12,000 a year. Not many families can afford that. Not many child care centers, small businesses charge that because families can't afford it. We did cost modeling since the pandemic and that cost of care has actually gone up to $16,000 a year. It is ridiculously expensive to have high quality early care and education. So what happens to these women who run these small businesses of childcare is they're running small businesses at a deficit because they wanna care for kids and they wanna make sure children have access to what they need. Um, and so yes, in many cases compared to our state tuition, um, childcare is more expensive than that. Yeah, so um, right now there's are bills going through the legislature, um, as you mentioned on sports betting which could potentially have a big upside for early childhood care, but they're not yet legislated that way. Right now that money's not going to early childhood education. So um, for those of you listening out there, if you think that's important, you know, get in touch with your legislator to ask them to, to make that a priority. Um, your medical marijuana, um, they've allocated some part, we're probably gonna be $3 million. I know that the, the, the policy institute that Libby represents has been asking for $86 million to fund a kind of a base level of early childhood care for the families that just really can't afford it for how many years, Libby? It's $86 million a year, every year for a decade. We currently serve about 20,000 children in our state birth to four that are economically disadvantaged. We have over 173,000 children 
that are in need of care that are economically disadvantaged. And I would say that number is even higher now since the pandemic. Yeah, and so one of the other, and I wanna talk about two other ways that are being bantered about for early childhood education funding. One of them is the state general fund. So rather than have a dedicated fund, if we had the money or if it had been put in the original budget bill, there would be state general fund to go fund early childhood care. That money could be put into what's called the early childhood trust fund, I believe. Early childhood education fund. There it is. And that money gets matched. So let's say that somehow we managed to put $86 million in there. That means that when Orleans Parish comes up with their own program for a million dollars or two million or five million, that they can draw down a match from the state, from that trust fund. And I think that once, you, once that thing was funded or anything was put in it that was substantial enough, you would see these municipalities and parishes around the state start asking for that matching money. And I think that the legislatures really start to understand how much it's needed. Um, right now, it's possible that we get some in the state general fund, um, but it's also possible that we don't. So that's an, that's an issue where you can urge the governor and urge the legislature to, to put that money in if it becomes available. And it's good government at the end of the day. So it's not just the state doing things. It's not just locals doing things. It's really a match of good government, which we don't often do well in our state. So what a way to be a model in, with young children of how we can really fund something on both sides to make sure that access is there and a robust system is being built. So it's not just relied on one thing or the other. Yeah. Well, and one more topic that I do want to talk about on this particular subject about early childhood, um, the funding, um, is that included in, and I, I believe it was mostly the American Rescue Plan, that there's a large amount of money that is coming to Louisiana to be used in early childhood care in some way. But as Libby mentioned, um, there's going to be a real hesitancy, as there should be, to use one-time money we get this burst of money from the federal government. You don't want to start a program that the state can't afford to finance long-term. What are some of the things that they're talking about using that money for right now, Libby? Uh, so they're talking about infrastructure um, and, and data systems, which are grossly needed. Both are grossly needed in the state. Um, our data systems throughout the state don't talk to each other. I'm sure Secretary Cates knows that well. Um, Everything's in silos. So how do we really bridge the gap between data systems with the silos? How do we also bridge the gaps between agencies and services that um, may not be duplicative, but can really foster partnership and, and leverage resources? So that's another thing. The other piece of the puzzle is how do we make sure that we're getting uh, funds out to childcare centers so that they can remain open? We can't afford to lose a quality seat in this state. We cannot do it. We need to figure out a way to create more, but how do we use the infrastructure money that we can um, so that we can go over the long run? The other piece of this puzzle is we have a graphic, the Policy Institute for Children, it's a bridge. So the federal money builds the road and it gets you to about half part of the bridge, but the rest of the bridge has to be that state investment like we were talking about before, because we can't build a system that we can't sustain. Um, and so part of this too is how do we, actually just how do we reimagine a system? Because at the end of the day, 
We want children to have what they need and we want families to be wildly successful. We want them to be in the workforce, that we want them to be able to go to school and we need them to be supported to do so. And so the, the, these federal funds looking at all of that together, we're in a unique position at the Policy Institute for children, we're nonprofit, nonpartisan, we take no public money. So when we stand up for children, that's who we're standing up for. But we, it gives us a perch um, because of national partners to see what other states are doing to say, this is this could totally work here or we need to leave that alone and so we're spending a lot of time in collaboration with our with the state agency the louisiana department of education to think through this um, and really have some some visionary leadership um, at the state level to think about this in a robust way that's meaningful at the end of the day if i could i'd like to chime in on that so one of the other things that the arp dollars would go for is the unemployment insurance trust fund and it's hard for me to ever take off that hat uh the trust fund was nearly at a billion dollars before the pandemic and currently we do have money we just did a tax collection uh in the unemployment trust fund but we borrowed thus far uh nearly 190 million dollars so uh we had bills up today in in house labor related to suspending the tax triggers and the like but um and and certainly that's a worthwhile cause and one that i hope to see uh some of the one-time money go for but i i think i would be remiss if i didn't talk about the notion of what can we do on the employer side um royal martin and gilcrest uh in in alexandria uh partnered two competitors partnered to form a healthcare clinic for their workers in that they retained more of their workers uh, and anyone that works for those companies along with their families can come in and get healthcare services in there. And it's a little, you, it wouldn't be necessarily what you, I don't want to stereotype Alexandria or Central Louisiana, but how refreshing it was to go to Central Louisiana and see that. I think um, as I'm hearing all the time, and there was a move today to, you know, let's talk about cutting off the federal uh, unemployment plus up uh, because employers can't find workers. How can government partner with uh, companies to, for, to assist them in setting up childcare programs? And I know the notion of that is scary for everyone involved. You know, they're the liability, the tort, all of those types of things. Um, but as we want to lure the best and brightest to our state, as we want, as an employer, if you want to have those incredible employees, how do we make sure that um, maybe we can help and, and that there can be some sort of public-private partnership to provide those healthcare facilities near um, places of work? Or how can like industries or businesses in the same area maybe co-op to provide childcare and and maybe it's a tax credit for those businesses that uh, are able to provide that. Also, uh, the Louisiana Workforce Commission has, for example, dislocated worker dollars. We get them um, disaster dislocated worker dollars after a, a disaster. And one of the things in the COVID disaster dislocated worker that we could pay for healthcare for essential workers. Uh, so it is sort of this dream that we would be able to partner with um, those essential work organizations to be able to provide, uh, to pay the wages of those healthcare workers. It is uh, a difficult thing to, to set up in a lot of moving parts, but that could perhaps be one of the 
best practices that comes from this. And for those employers that um, have so much difficulty uh, attracting workers, that they have workers that work 12 hour shifts. So they're working at night and those sort of things. Um, if they could somehow find the ability to partner with government assistance to provide that health, that childcare facility around the clock that their workers could take advantage of, boy, what does that do to get more people into the workforce? And what does that do for employee loyalty? I think it's really, we have to consider some out of the box things that um, involve risk on everyone's side and are scary on everyone's side, I believe, but that will benefit the greater good. That's about all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guests, Libby Sonier, Secretary Cates, and Missy Sparks, as well as the National Council of Jewish Women, Hadassah, and the Jewish Endowment of Louisiana. If you're interested in joining Elevate Louisiana, visit our website at elevatela.org. That's E-L-L-E-V-A-T-E-L-A.org. Don't forget to like Elevate Louisiana on all of your social media platforms, and please share this videocast on your page if you found it interesting. I'm your host, Julie Stokes, and we'll see you next time.